Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm in basic, um, I've just entered Fort Dix. I'm telling somebody, somebody who's actually a regular soldier that I'm going to go to be trained as a medic, but I didn't think I'd be going to Vietnam. And he says to me, what do you think they need medics? (laughs) On the Jersey Turnpike? (laughs) When Gary Kulik was a young man, he was drafted for the war in Vietnam. He thought of himself as a conscientious objector. Yet after giving it some serious thought, he went to Vietnam as a medic how he got to that decision, what he saw in Vietnam, and how he thinks about the war today as it lives on in cultural memory are the topics of this conversation. As is the Catholic doctrine of just war and the conditions under which going to war is considered right in the eyes of our church. Gary and I talked mostly about Vietnam, but also about the other wars of recent memory, World War II, Afghanistan, Iraq, and of course the current war in Ukraine. On Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics about religion and history and culture. I'm your host, Chris Odinitz, and I get to ask interesting people who have thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this format and relationship and dialogue and back and forth may help us approach the truth and to have a really good time doing it. Should you want to take the conversation a step further, I invite you to please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Gary Kulik, a Roman Catholic conscientious objector, served in Vietnam as an infantry medic for five months in 1970 with the 4th Infantry Division and completed his tour as a clerk in the headquarters of the 61st Medical Battalion, Dust Off which is the call sign for the medical evacuation air ambulance helicopters. He returned from Vietnam to complete a PhD in American civilization at Brown University, later serving in management positions at the Smithsonian Institution and at the Winter Tour Museum, Garden, and Library. A former editor of American Quarterly, he is the author of War Stories, False Atrocity Tales, Swift Boaters, and Winter Soldiers, What Really Happened in Vietnam. So welcome, uh, Gary, and thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. 
your story is extraordinary, Gary, because you were opposed to the war in Vietnam and opposed to fighting in this flawed cause, and yet you went to serve and put yourself in harm's way to serve your country. Would you like to tell us about how you came to that conclusion? I did not come easily uh, to it. I grew up in a family with close ties uh, to the military. My father had served in the Marines prior to World War II and then served in the Army Air Corps as an officer uh, during the war. His two brothers graduated from one from West Point, one from Annapolis, and they had long and distinguished careers. Uh, the three of us, actually, the two, my two uncles and, and myself, overlapped uh, in Vietnam. That was a, you know, a defining part of my life. And um, had, it, uh, had Vietnam not happened, uh, I, I could conceivably have, have uh, had a career as an officer. I grew up in a family of officers. When it became clear that I was going to be drafted, I had to make, I had to make a choice, and um, the choices were existential. Um, I wasn't going to Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't going to jail. Um, but I could not, or I, rather, and I could not serve as an officer in a war I didn't believe in. Uh, I was a Roman Catholic in uh, Massachusetts. The likelihood that I could have prevailed as an alternative service conscientious objector was remote. And here I think it's important to distinguish. Lots of people don't know this. Uh, but during the time of Vietnam, and, and going all the way back, really, to World War I, it was possible to take two routes to conscientious objection. One was to claim that um, uh, a deep religious belief precluded any service in the military. And the second was uh, uh, to claim that... Um, I was prepared, you were prepared to serve in a non-combatant role. Mm -hmm. Non-combatant came to be defined uh, as the medical corps early in World War II. So th those were the options faced uh, by uh, young men in the 60s into the, certainly in the 60s. So to say, when you say alternate services, mm -hmm. that would have been something outside of the military entirely. That's right. Right. That's right. And for and for people who grew up in the so-called peace churches, brethren, Quakers, that was an easy claim to make. Mm -hmm. uh, for those of us who grew up in um, in churches that that did not embrace pacifism, that was a harder claim to make. Yeah. But not impossible. Uh, the core of liturgical churches uh, in the 60s, um, although they didn't require you to be a pacifist, embraced the idea that you could be individually, that your conscience precluded killing. 
Yeah. So that was the that was the claim I made to um, my draft board. Uh, is it? May I ask? Is there any context in which you, for example, you wrote in your book? I knew that they might ask me, would I have gone to World War II? Yes. Do, what would you have said had they said, "Okay, let's go fight the Nazis"? Well, um, I knew uh, in my heart that I would have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I was a beneficiary of um, a kind of Catholic education that allowed me to say this to myself anyway, that the question was hypothetical and anachronistic. Right. And uh, I could not answer it with moral certainty. Right. Uh, I was self-schooled, not self-schooled, but but, uh, well-educated in Thomist philosophy in my college years at St. Michael's in in Vermont. And so this was uh, an easy argument for for me to make. Um, I could not answer the question with more certainty. So um, it's 1968, and uh, you you are in college, is that correct? I was, uh, I graduated from college in 1967. 67, okay, so you're just out of college. Just out of college, and um, I, I had grown to be invested in um, both the moral grandeur of the early years of the civil rights movement and mm-hmm. and the possibility of helping people escape poverty. And those were all... Was... You went to uh, Elizabeth City in North Carolina. This was under the auspices of, of the... Um, of my college and the the Catholic order, the Order of St. Edmund. Okay. They had, they had um, a mission in Elizabeth City, and and uh, this this was this was my opportunity. This was the opportunity that came to me through my college, and mm-hmm. uh, th- these were these were promising young students. Mm-hmm. Many of whom went on to college. Some were the. Uh, uh, daughters of, of faculty at uh, uh, Elizabeth City State College at the time. So these are urban kids with a reasonably good chance of, of success. So this was a kind of an enrichment program, not a remedial program. Gotcha. I, and I did that for two summers. And then um, after graduating, I decided to join what was the, then the Domestic Peace Corps, VISTA. And so I served for a year in Nashville, Tennessee, um, as a, uh, quite frankly, a failed community organizer. Um, <laughs> well, it just wasn't in my personality to yeah. do that, and, and I wasn't very good at it. Uh, and I was deferred uh, as a result of that. And then um, I had I had applied to graduate school uh, in American studies at, at several places after graduating in 67, but I deferred it to do the year in VISTA. The draft law changed uh, for those of us who graduated from college in 1967. Had had I graduated a year earlier, it would have been possible to um, continue a graduate education with student deferments year after year after year which is what Dick Cheney did mm-hmm. and basically age out of the draft. 
But this modest reform in 1967, after 1967, uh, made it clear that there, this wasn't going to happen. When I went to grad, when I went to Providence to, to, uh, to my first year at Brown, I knew that I would only be allowed to complete one year. I didn't know at the time that the these two years of deferment were absolutely critical to my escaping the worst killing years in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Those years were 67, 8, and 9. So I knew that uh, I was going to be drafted. I went to, I made my case to, to the draft board um, in the fall of 1968. I made it as, as a Roman Catholic conscientious objector. Mm-hmm. My understanding at that point was that I would count in whatever quota that draft board had. So it was an easy decision for them. I'm willing to serve. Right. They didn't agree. They might not have agreed with why uh, or my stance on conscientious objection, but that that didn't matter to their numbers. Yeah. So it's it's pretty straightforward. So I knew that I was going in by the summer of '69, which is which is what happened. I want to go back. Um, yeah. um, I, I grew up um, in a Catholic household. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad's grandparents had came from Poland. My mother's had come from Ireland. Both sets of grandparents coming to the country in the early 20th century. My mother was probably more insistent than my father, but I, I, we, we did um, the standard things. We, we went to church every Sunday. We uh, observed the, the holy days of obligation, um, mm-hmm. but we did nothing beyond that. We didn't do novenas. We didn't do First Fridays. Um, none of the things. I wasn't an altar boy. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to Catholic school until high school. And I sometimes think that um, uh, that saved me from, uh, I suppose now, stereotypical vision of what Catholic education was like in the 1950s and early 1960s. So I came into Catholic education. I spent eight years uh, high school and college among nuns and priests. And in many ways, that was absolutely formative. My formative years in high school were really late. And in many ways, the most important teacher I ever had uh, was a nun, Sister Marie de Lourdes. I'd gotten into her class by accident. I was supposed to have taken American history prior to that. I hadn't, but it was overlooked. This was a seminar. She sat in the middle. We sat around her. There were 10 or 12 of us in this seminar. It was a government. Mm -hmm. It was a give and take. This wasn't traditional rote learning. This This was, what do you think about this? And you could disagree. This is 1962, 1963. We never sat down to read anything called Catholic social teaching. This is a high school history class? This is a high school government class. A high school U.S. government class with 10 or 12 kids. 10 or 12 kids. That's lovely. Yeah. That's that's extraordinary. This is a huge high school. Yeah. And I'm in this class by mistake, and it was uh, the most important class I ever took. this Sister Marie de Lourdes was a committed 
New Deal Democrat. She loved Franklin Roosevelt. She had great, great hopes for JFK, but the nuns were wise to him. They, they knew that he was a problem. And they're, they're, I remember one nun saying, well, we hope Jackie can keep him straight. <laughs> um, the readings we did, which uh, were on the, the early years, obviously, of, of the American Constitution, but, but led into the civil rights movement, issues of discrimination. Um, the first serious book review she asked me to do was a review of Milvan Gilas, the Yugoslavian dissident, the hmm. book called The New Class. Now, this, you know, if you were a Catholic liberal in the 1960s, you were also deeply anti-communist in, in the good sense, not, not in the McCarthy sense. Yeah, yeah, we, knew, yeah. we knew what they were doing to priests in Poland and Hungary and what they were doing to the church. Yeah. So that, that, was, that, was, that was my inheritance. And of course, it happens at the same time. Um, this class sort of opens up for me all sort of possibilities that I hadn't thought of before, including going deeper into, uh, at the time I was thinking, um, sociology was a, was a you know, really exciting field. There were popular books out there. Um, absorbing this, not knowing that this is Catholic social teaching, in the midst of the beginnings of the civil rights movement, the anti-poverty movement, that's the driving force. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's those are the connections I was able to make as I came to um, articulating a position before my draft board on, on Vietnam. Well, I certainly see why you're invested in education and the you know f- f- um, all the programs to fight poverty. Uh, and did you just see that the war in Vietnam would be a inscrutable tangled mess that nobody knew what was happening anyway? Or because I could also say like, well, aren't you fighting, um, you know, the totalitarian uh, oppression of peasants on the other side of the world? Or, or you saw the South Vietnamese government as inherently corrupt, not democratic at all. What, not, how did you how did you sort this out? Right. <laughs> I don't think I had a coherent political position on what was going on in Vietnam. I'm quite sure I didn't. I thought the war was wrong uh, for all the reasons that young uh, left liberals thought it was wrong. I'm sure that I bought some, not all, but some of the the anti-war rhetoric that. And of course, some of that rhetoric was directed at, at the corruption of the South Vietnamese government, but it was also uh, it was a, an incredible romanticism about the North and Ho Chi Minh, and you know, and that. It, what about that business? Didn't he quote the Declaration of Independence when he mm-hmm. took the country in 1945? I mean, I bought into that. He had he had been at uh, the Treaty of Versailles, right? Talking to Woodrow Wilson. I didn't know that then. But that's that's yeah. right. Rebuffed by Woodrow Wilson. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, so I, you know, that was that was uh, in the air. And again, the war seemed to me wrong. Is this is this because we are sick and tired of Western Empire? And who cares about the communists? Maybe they'll be okay. I think my anti-communism was weakening mm-hmm. at that point. And, and would probably weaken a bit further as I was in graduate school. But that's another story. To me, the war was morally wrong. 
the, the other piece of the Ho Chi Minh myth was that he was much more a nationalist than he was a communist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the driving force uh, to expel the French. And, uh, and here, here we are replacing the French. So I think all of that added up to a you know, series of moral, sentiment, moral sentimentality about Ho and the North. And, yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah, what yeah. that's I was that, that, that that's as as we would have said in the sixties, that's that's where my head was. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. But then you have to put this to make an argument to the draft board and and as you observe they're they're pretty hard nosed the uh, Irish Catholics themselves. Right, right. But again, I'm 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 willing to serve. Yeah, exactly. So and that would be the, fine for them. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They might not have yeah, I'm sure they didn't agree with me. But I'm going in. And did people think you were crazy? Were other people your age who were against the war saying, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you being part of this? What were your friends, what were your friends doing? Well, one of my friends came, came uh, to my draft board hearing with me. And uh, you know, he came out of a similar Catholic social teaching background, even though you know, we weren't studying... Catholic social teaching as per se, but that was that was the surround in which we were we were living at the time, and, and uh, it's a good question. And I think it may simply have been, you know, my my sense that uh, this was a decision I had to make, and um, only I could make it. I, I wasn't at all very attentive to what other people were doing. I saw myself as having to make a fundamentally different decision mm-hmm. uh, that would be personally authentic. You know, the 60s were it was a time when the expectation was that you, you would act with authenticity. And uh, there were things, therefore, that... Um, I couldn't do or felt I couldn't do. Um, I could have easily gotten into the National Guard, mm-hmm. but that seemed to me wrong. I was spindly in builds, tall, but spindly. There were people who um, starved themselves, um, went to great lengths to make sure that they were below the, um, the weight limit for their height. Mm-hmm. There were other people like uh, uh, our former president, who uh, got medical deferments for questionable um, uh, illnesses or ailments. This is, I, this is Mr. Trump. Yes. Because yes, we also, yes. you know, we know that George Bush went to the National Guard. Dick Cheney, like you said, went to graduate school. Right. Uh, Joe right. Biden, I think he was in law school, maybe. Well, he's married. Yeah. There's, yeah. There is a very, you know, except for John McCain, except for uh, the Senator Kerry and the other Senator Kerry, Bob Carey of Nebraska, I think. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. not that many famous uh, Vietnam vets in in, civil, in public leadership today. They've, well, Al Gore. Al Gore served. Al Gore did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. I mean, there were, there were countless ways to um, game the draft, uh, avoid it. With, especially for somebody with means and connections. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But all that felt false to me. Yeah. I couldn't do it. Do you have a feeling that you were mortally afraid or that the chances were pretty low? 
were or you were like I'm willing to roll the dice to keep my honor and integrity. I was naive. You were naive. Yeah, you were, uh, I, you were feeling immortal. <laughs> well, I, I I don't know that I felt immortal. I I there was a piece of me that that thought, well, why would they send me to Vietnam? And of course, mm-hmm. that that was the naivete. <laughs> And I remember queuing for my for orders somewhere. I'm I'm in basic. Um, I've just entered Fort Dix. I'm telling somebody somebody who's actually a regular soldier that I'm going to go to be trained as a medic. But I didn't think I'd be going to Vietnam. And he says to me, "What do you think they need medics? On the Jersey Turnpike?" <laughs> yeah. So it gradually dawns on me that uh, that's likely where I'm going. So you're at Fort Dix, New Jersey. Then you go to San Antonio in Texas. That's right. And you liked your drill instructors. You thought they were tough but fair. I, I, I did. I came to like them. I mean, I hated um, basic training. Yeah. The, the loss of freedom, the, you know, just just the uh, sequestration in the barracks, with, you know, no privacy. Yeah. Um, it, it was hard on me. It was very hard. And, and at a certain moment, um, I called my parents. Mm-hmm. We had connections. And so um, I'm doing everything I can. So I'm, I'm, I'm writing to um, the chief of military history. I'm, I'm looking around for anything that would al- allow me to um, avoid Vietnam. And um, I was success- uh, successful. Mm-hmm. So my first assignment after medical training was to um, the historical unit of the Surgeon General's office at Walter Reed. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm the only enlisted man, the only enlisted historian in an office of, of young officers and some, some more senior people. And I was assigned projects. And, but this didn't keep me uh, from what would eventually happen. I, I would end up in something the military calls a levy for the spring of 1974 for Vietnam. Uh-huh. I was under the impression that that was because you were writing uh, articles for for left leaning newspapers, but not so. That would have happened. I was, I was doing foolish things yeah, uh, yeah. That, that I shouldn't uh, have been doing. Yeah. Uh, but when I uh, requested my military records um, a few years back, there was a clear letter from uh, the executive officer of the historical. Uh, unit asking that I be relieved from the leaving. Mm-hmm. So it went directly to the commanding general of, of Walter Reed. It was endorsed by him. And it went to army personnel and the word came back uh, denied that the need for medics in Vietnam was overwhelming. So um, people who might have known or perhaps knew um, that I had written pieces for the, uh, what was then the GI underground press, uh, overlooked it. Right. Because there's a war on. No, no, they, 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 they overlooked it in the first instance because, you know, for whatever reason, they wanted to keep me there. Yeah. And it gets overruled by bureaucrats who probably know nothing. My immediate superiors knew or had to know I had been uh, under investigation in basic training because of uh, radical literature that I had uh, and that uh, I had authored pieces in the GI press, but they overlooked that. Got it. That's uh, yes. I understand. Yes. 
Um, which raises the question, I mean, my political protector was in, in Washington at the time, but I think I decided I, I, I wasn't going to go back to him, wasn't going to ask a second time. You know, I think it was embarrassed and, and ashamed that I had used political influence to avoid the war. So I went. Mm-hmm. I, I was prepared to go. And again, this delay, this, you know, the historical unit duty lasted about half a year. So in addition to the year of graduate school, in addition to the year in VISTA, I'm arriving in Vietnam when um, units are going home. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no more. The 4th Infantry had gone into Cambodia. It had pulled back by the time I joined it. I didn't know it at the time. It, it was on its way home. Got it. Six months later, it would, or five months later, it was gone. There's um, another piece of this that, that I've written about. Once assigned to a battalion in Vietnam, I never left the headquarters company. This is the 4th Infantry Division, is that right? 4th Infantry, 4th Medical Battalion. 4th Medical Battalion. Yeah. And the reason for that is that I was a college graduate. I was 24 years old. I was a college graduate. I had a year of graduate school. I did well on standardized tests of the sort that the Army also gives you. Mm -hmm. And by any measure, you know, my file comes into the battalion personnel office and I'm, you know, they want me. And, you know, the headquarters company was, was... uh, that's where the safety was. That's where the promotions came. That's where the R&R billets first came. So a medic with, with um, lower test scores, not a college graduate, uh, would have run greater risks than I did. And you had, so uh, a medic is sort of a first responding kind of, like who might be in an ambulance today. You're, you haven't had much medical training beyond what you got at San Antonio and, and New That's Jersey. right. But you know how to stop blood. You know how to give shots. Give shots. Right. Right. Tourniquet. Uh, we that, that's that's an interesting story. We were we were cautioned about tourniquets. This wasn't just uh, we're fighting the last war. We're fighting the last war a hundred years ago. Hmm. Um, I only recently learned. There's been a, a study of this, and I, I uh, I'll look it up. Um, but I don't have it at my fingertips right now. We lost men because of the, the fear of putting tourniquets on. Yeah. We were cautioned to, to be very careful about it. You know, the study that I recently saw was basically an argument that, that no one with truncal and uh, bleeding should have died. Mm-hmm. No one. That's what tourniquets are for. I'm sorry, not not truncal ble- bleeding, but but uh, bleeding from the arms or legs. Yeah. So we were cautioned on that. But you know, I wasn't uh, a field medic. I, I I worked in an aid station. You're is this uh, in in Pleiku in the central highlands of uh, Vietnam? In, in uh, Anke. Anke. Okay. Anke in the central highlands, right? So I'm I'm in a very large. Uh, uh, compound. Yeah. You feel uh, you feel like you could get killed any moment, or not really. You're removed from the front. We went out outside the wire uh, to a company patrols, day and a half perimeter patrols. I was I was so assigned once. Mm-hmm. 
Otherwise, the risks are, are rocket attacks or um, you know attempts to breach uh, the perimeter, and th- those were real. But but no, I'm I'm not in the field every day with uh, a, a maneuvering infantry platoon. And again, that that was that was the virtue of coming both to the war late and coming to the to the war with with my personal background. Mm-hmm. When the fourth goes home. Um, I was reassigned, um, and once again, you know, I end up in this battalion headquarters, and I answered honestly uh, the question, "Can I type?" <laughs> and that was the end. That was, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm going to now serve out as a serve my time as as a as a clerk, which was, you know, a cushy job. Yeah, I I didn't, you know, there's a funny story attached to that that you know, the outgoing battalion commander wanted the a perfectly typed um, seven pages. This is when you had to do carbon copies. You know, it had to be perfectly typed, no no strikeovers. And the, the my predecessor hadn't been able to finish that. So th- this is my job, yeah. basically. I remember uh, complaining to the executive officers, who was a you know lovely guy. Can't be right. You know, I'm trained as a medic. I I want to fly. I want to be. I want to. I want to be assigned to a a, a dust off unit. And he kept his word, but only after I finished the uh, the seven pages perfectly typed for the outgoing commander. <laughs> and um, you know, bottom line is that um, I failed the eye test. I did, I, I wore glasses. I didn't have twenty twenty vision. You had to have twenty twenty vision in order to be uh, in, in flight crew. Uh-huh. So I I didn't get a chance to play John Wayne or yeah. whatever. Um, yeah. You know. It was a disappointment, mm-hmm. uh, but on the other hand, I'm safe. And not only are you safe, but you also haven't got any blood on your hands, which is what I think. The, That's right. There's no danger of making a mistake when you're. I mean, there's a danger of mis, uh, treating a wound poorly, that kind of thing. But right. there's no danger of like shooting before you're sure and and that sort of thing. Um, which I think right. is always a risk. I mean, that's a risk when you're driving the car and you're looking at your cell phone, but it's definitely a risk when you have a rifle and are in a foreign land that you don't really understand mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or any, any place with high confusion, lots of noise, that sort of thing. I'm writing a book now on conscientious objector medics, and um, it's pulled together from a variety of sources, including oral interviews. There were, there were some COs who, who took weapons. And uh, I, I have no, no judgment against them. No, no way to judge that. One fellow I interviewed um, sort of rationalized it as a patient protector. Hmm. Um, a guy I served with uh, accepted, uh, who was a CO, um, was on ambush patrol one night and, and uh, uh, took a forty-five from yeah. the platoon sergeant. So as, again, as protection. So. Yeah, I do you have a sense of when it's appropriate to fight when it's not appropriate to fight in absolute terms? I mean, you, clearly you had a strong moral feeling and clearly you were right. I think you you sleep with a clear conscience of just from reading your your first book that it's you you seem like a a, a man who who lives well with the decisions he's made. And I think many people, you know, I've been very lucky. I've never been in a in a in a difficult position like that when I was uh, when I was the right age for the war and we had a war after 9-11, I was already signed up for the Peace Corps. And to right. my thinking as a 20-year-old, oh, I'm going to go 
serve in the Peace Corps in Muslim West Africa, I felt like I'm, do, I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. And it's true that it's a very comfortable part. There's no danger. Ten years later, where I was got overrun by uh, villains from Libya, but nobody would have predicted that when I was there. And it, it was a very safe, very comfortable kind of thing. And I felt, and I, I sleep, but I always, you know, I wonder, oh, I made, did I miss out on the, the, you know, the, the, the job of my generation, which was to go mm-hmm. fight this thing. But you, you, you managed to not, not bloody your hands and put yourself on the front lines, which I think is a double, double honor. And I think every war has this confusion and, you look at all of the 300,000 Russians who are escaping from Russia into Uzbekistan and places like that because they know the last thing they want to do is go shoot at Ukrainians, that sort of thing. Yes, yes. And, and we have, you know, Pope Francis saying that the, the defense of Ukraine is a, is a clearly just and moral war. And we sort of, we know, we know that one's so easy to see from the outside. And maybe it's much more confusing when you get to the front lines and it's much more confusing because humans are messy and we would like to think that world war ii is very clear but i think vietnam and i think perhaps iraq uh are very very confusing do you have do you have guidelines that you live by that that you have learned as you study this and interview people what are the conditions for a just war or that sort of thing Um, from the catholic point of view well, actually, I think the Pope came slowly to, to the notion that this was a just war. He was, didn't speak out very clearly initially. That's true. That's and so that seemed to blame uh, NATO and Ukraine uh, to some extent for, for uh, 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 the situation. Let me go back to, um, uh, well, maybe this is both, this, this is a, somewhat of an answer. I don't. Um, I was never a true pacifist. In, in extremis, um, I would have picked up a weapon and defended myself. And when I think about what what the Ukrainians are doing, I mean, I just stand in awe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I fully support arming them uh, to the hilt, both... Uh, arming from the U.S. and arming from from the EU, and and uh, you know, I note with with some pride that it's it's uh, the moral center of Europe has shifted east. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Germans and the French are still dilatory, but it's the Baltic countries, it's Poland, uh, uh, especially the tiny the yeah. three Estonia, just so strong for Ukraine. Yeah, I was a. Uh, technically a pacifist for 10 months yeah and was never really tested never really tested yeah well i see here in the the catechism of the catholic church in paragraph 2309 it says the strict conditions for the legitimate defense by military force require rigorous consideration the gravity of such a decision makes it subject to rigorous conditions of moral legitimacy at one at the same time, they must. And here's four bullet points. The first one says the damage inflicted by the aggressor on the nation or community of nations must be lasting, grave, and certain. It says mm-hmm. all other means of putting an end to it must have been shown to be impractical or ineffective. The third one is there must be serious prospects of success. 
And mm-hmm. then the use of arms must not produce evils and disorders graver than the evil to be eliminated. The power of modern means of destruction weighs very heavily in evaluating this condition. So right. those last two, I think, are problematic for Vietnam. One, it's hard to know how you're ever going to win. And two, there was sure was a lot of collateral destruction. Well, yeah. But I think the last point really speaks to proportionality. Yeah. That, that you respond only to the point where you, you have to. Yeah. And don't, don't go further. And of course, um, you know, Vietnam was marred by, by war crimes that, that we committed, that the North committed, that the Koreans committed, which violate principles of proportionality. Yeah. But you also make a point that in your book, and you give many examples of this, that we as an American society, and especially sort of the public Hollywood, um, public intellectual face of us, have painted Vietnam as an unmitigated disaster full of war crimes, which far exceeds the reality. And you cite sources that say, you know, um, three quarters of the uh, veterans are proud of their service. Two thirds would have done it again, even knowing the outcome that, you know, for for the the war crimes are real and not to be ignored, but they're also very rare. And yet we've painted with a broad brush. No, I I think, I think that's right. And, and uh, this of course is, is now, you know, part of my mature thinking about the war. No, I think I think the the war was was framed very early by left liberal anti-war thought, and you know the notion that it was atrocity producing by its very nature was a substantial part of that framing. I, I don't think anyone in in all honesty can say that you know, we've uncovered every war crime that Americans committed. But, you know, now years and years after, uh, no one has been able to come up with anything remotely like what happened at My Lai. And yet there are still people who think that was typical of the way we fought the war. It, it wasn't typical. It was utterly atypical. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm pleased that uh, Marshall Poe has a, has a book coming out on this that, that uh, I was a reader on. And uh, there's a blurb by me on the, uh, that will be on the back of his book. What is it going to be? What is it called? Uh, I'm not sure what what the title is, but it's, it's he's he's thoroughly investigated um, the, the testimony. He's he's really the first uh, to actually sit down with the with the reams of testimony that came out of Mila to come to a certain set of conclusions. And I, I won't I'll, I'll let him. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, it's a powerful book, and and uh, it certainly makes the argument that this. You know, this was exceptional and not and not and not standard. I think for me, um, the book I wrote, which came out in 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 '09 and was was um, in the works quite a few years earlier, was in some part the result of what happened in 1989, the collapse of communism across the the East, and then of course the collapse in 1991 in Russia. It, it, this was a, a, this was a way for me to rethink all those anti-communist simplicities about Vietnam and the, the simplicities of the anti-war movement. There was a, this long been a trope on, on the left that fascism had to be uh, destroyed, but communism could be reformed. Well, 1989 gave a lie to that. It, it it wasn't being reformed. It was overthrown by incredibly brave people in Poland and Prague. 
um, and elsewhere. Yeah, well, any, any system that has no dissent or no vehicle for this uh, debate will become right. brittle. And... Indeed, yeah. I don't know how it could have happened, but um, I wish the South had, had prevailed. I, uh, I, I wish we had stayed in support longer. Vietnam right now is, is run by homegrown Stalinists. And uh, you look at what's happened in places like Korea and Taiwan, which are now, you know, reasonable democracies. They, they weren't initially. They, you know, they too were, were run by uh, right-wing yeah. authorities. Uh, Military cabals. Or- yeah, yeah that's, that's, it's, it's changed. What the difference that would make. So that that's... You know, led me to uh, want to read far more than I had read in 1969 about mm-hmm. why we were in Vietnam and what it meant. Uh, so I find a great greatest resource there are, are historians who write uh, not about the American War from the American side, but historians who, who, who know the language, who write about the history of Vietnam in those uh, d- during that period. Uh, that's where all the interesting work is is being done now. Yeah. No, and uh, there's a problem. Just um, maybe it was a time when there were not that many people in America who were Vietnamese. That there were not enough GIs who understood the language, the customs. You know, if you go fight in World War II, if you go fight in France or Germany, there's plenty of American soldiers who are French or German. Or like you and I are Polish, we could go to Ukraine and it would make perfect sense. But if there mm-hmm. were not enough actual immigrants of Vietnamese extraction, then then you really are a total foreigner. And uh, I I wonder, did you have a feeling that I, was it was it bewildering to be and not to be able to tell who's who or what's what or what a friend looks like or a foe looks like if they're under the thinnest disguise or, or am I, or am I projecting my own ignorance of the culture? I think there's, there's no question that, that, uh, that young men went to Vietnam with uh, no knowledge of the Vietnamese. I, I think what's even more, what was even more disastrous is that our, our political leadership and our military <laughs> did the same thing. Yeah. So you know, but but yeah, the eighteen-year-olds, you know, uh, uh, some of them treated the Vietnamese badly. And um, sure, I'm sure, I'm sure they were afraid and hostile. Well, I, I don't even know if, if it was fear, but just you know, contempt for a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, Vietnam was not a particularly sanitary place. Um, Vietnamese women uh, chewing uh, betel nut. Uh, which, which turns your teeth blackish red were you know objects of scorn for for many young GIs. Again, I, I can't you know I, I was I was older. Um, there was an occasion when I was treating uh, a Vietnamese man who uh, was a laborer at the Fourth Division's base camp, and uh, he had a head head wound from something hit him and. I don't say this, admit the, the pride, but I, I treated him the same way I would have I treated any American who needed to be stitched up. 
Mm-hmm. I think about that now. I mean, we were never trained to do anything like that. And, you know, in, in the United States, you can't, you know, nurses can't do that. But we're, you know, I learned a suture just by watching other medics. Um, but I think, you know, uh, that may have been an exception. I, I think. Um, yeah. I, I never felt uh, fearful. Uh, I'm encountering these people in in most cases, in a controlled environment, I did go on what were what were called the med caps, where we'd go out. I can't even remember what cap now stands for, but but uh, we would bring uh, medical aid uh, out into the villages and line up, and we would do whatever, give them aspirin, or you know, it was pretty primitive. It wasn't anything special. Um, so I was in that environment, but I, I think. Sometimes the, uh, it's important to remember only some American soldiers were in situations where they couldn't be sure of who was friend and who was foe. So this is a Hollywood trope I'm repeating to you. Well, I think, I think it's, 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 uh, it's somehow, uh, it, it, it all depended on where you served. If, if you served with the Marines up close to the DMZ, your enemy was the uniformed army of the North Vietnamese. There weren't any peasants out there. The same thing if you served deep in the Central Highlands, you're fighting against a, a, a uniformed army. If you're serving in the coastal areas, where Milai was, then you're in an environment where you're not sure who the enemy is, who the friend is. Um, so that needs to be, and not surprisingly, the atrocities happen, the American atrocities happen in those areas where, where you can't distinguish easily friend from foe. And there was also a whole other program that both the Marines and the Army came up with of, I forget the terminology, but this was small units embedded in, in a village, in a coastal village. Marines did this, Army did this. And I, I know people who had that experience. And they're the ones who have high praise for the Vietnamese and, and for their army. They served with them. And um, it's usually people, soldiers who you know, didn't serve with anybody, any Vietnamese uh, uh, soldiers who have contempt. And these were situations where at the very least, you're not going to have a Milan level atrocity because you know these people. You're, you're serving next to them. Yeah. Uh, now there was there was some coercion involved in this as well. I mean, you're also keeping young men from joining the Viet Cong. Yeah. But that that, that was a minor part of the war. Westmoreland wasn't interested in in investing much in in it. In that, and and uh, so so he elected to to fight a big battalion war in the countryside, where um, again the, the difficulty of separating friend from foe was was uh, much more acute. Yeah, there was a, um, and I can't remember where I heard this, but there was a discussion I listened to about uh, David Petraeus and what he called the Petraeus Doctrine, and his whole idea was, I want you guys to 
pull over in the Humvee and get out of the car and go have tea with the people. And mm -hmm. the local commanders didn't want to do it because it put their put their soldiers, the Marines, in in harm's way. And they called it, they literally called it breaking the seal. <laughs> and it's oh. like, if you break the seal, as if you were on another planet and you're taking off your helmet, you know, that breaking the seal of of the, like a, a cordon sanitaire sort of idea. And I thought, you, if you never get to sit down and eat food and drink tea with these people, you are never going to understand. It, it seemed like su such a sad state of affairs where like that was an unacceptable risk just to, like that, that's not a war that that can be won if you don't ever figure out who you're, you know, of course, how are you going to prevent somebody from joining the, the Viet Cong if, if they don't think Americans are people too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, those were, those were, those were tactics never, never developed on a large scale. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I have no argument that somehow things could have been different if, if they had been, but yeah. I, I know that. Uh, there would have been fewer war crimes. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. Well, we have been talking for an hour. Uh, we've barely scratched the surface of this book, which is really about the culture of um, how we interpret the Vietnam War looking back and especially from uh, in those in the 70s and 80s. And I don't know if you want to say that or we could leave that for the readers to, to pick up the book. I, I, I found it really easy to read, extremely interesting and just a, a series of very provocative and very relevant essays. If any of your listeners want to read a book that's not the conventional book on the Vietnam War, then I, I would strongly recommend uh, my book, War Stories, which I think was an even-handed effort to assail some of the myths of the war from both the left and the right. You know, if your mind is open, to thinking differently about the war, and and I think for many people it's 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 not, um, you know, it's, it's many people my age I should say. I mean, it's it's a new world for younger people who, who may not have been as engaged in it. You know, there, there's some terrific work being done by historians of Vietnam who know French, know Vietnamese, uh, and uh, in most cases are too young to have been. Um, much affected by the uh, the sixties and anti-war rhetoric that developed then. And the last thing I'll say is that you know I'm working on um, another book, and this is uh, this is on conscientious objector medics, the forgotten medics of Vietnam is the tentative title. And uh, I hope to have a, a proposal out to publishers uh, relatively soon. I've. Uh, had the proposal vetted and uh, the book is basically finished. I, I need a publisher. So we're looking forward to getting that done. Yeah. Well, congratulations on, on both. The first book is called War Stories, False Atrocity Tales, Swift Boaters and Winter Soldiers, What Really Happened in Vietnam. It is a rigorous, attentive, nuanced, and very thoughtful look at many of the stories we have been, we have been hearing um, and sometimes take, uh, take credulously um, and especially for those of us old enough to remember John Kerry's run in 2004, both his champions and his detractors, uh, you look at you look at you look at them both. And the forthcoming book is probably going to be called "Forgotten Medics of Vietnam," and so we can look forward to that. Right. right. Thank yeah. you, Gary Kulik, for being part of Almost Good Catholics. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the.
Christo Diniz and Gary Kulik recorded this conversation on Monday, February 13, 2023. It was the feast day of the Vietnamese saint, Tan Phao Lo Le Van Lao. He was a priest in the Apostolic Vicariate of West Cochin, China in Vietnam, and he was murdered in the persecutions of Emperor Tudok in 1830. The Catholic tradition perseveres in Vietnam even today under a communist regime. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band, and their website is www.gscoasterband.com. And our logo comes from a stained glass window at the Monastery of Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain and from the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales at www.english.op.org. I'm Chris Odinitz. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to talking to you next time. This is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing.